Some people call him a lay saint, and he certainly saved countless lives. His contributions range from logic and pure math to biology. This week, it's Alan Turing on Footnoting History. Hi, I'm Kirsty, and welcome to Footnoting History. This week, we're kicking off a brand new series that I'm very excited about called Science, Scientists, and Natural Philosophers. But Kirsty, you say, this is footnoting history. Alan Turing's not exactly a footnote. And you're right, he's one of the great giants of 20th century science. His work with the Enigma machine in World War II is becoming pretty well known, and anyone who uses the internet with any regularity has encountered a Turing test in the form of a CAPTCHA. But there's a lot to Alan Turing, and sometimes it's really important to see the points in which we could have done better. Alan Matheson Turing was born on the 23rd of June, 1912, in London. His parents, Julius and Ethel, traveled frequently between India and Britain due to Julius's position with the India Civil Service. While his parents were away, he and his older brother John stayed with a retired military couple in Hastings. From the beginning of his school career, his teachers noticed that he was quite intelligent, even genius, and his enthusiasm for school was completely admirable. In fact, when he was scheduled to begin at the Sherborne School in 1926, he didn't let a general strike keep him away. He bicycled 60 miles to get to school, including a stay overnight at an inn. That's more dedication from a 13-year-old than I've seen from most college students. He attended King's College in Cambridge from 1931 to 1933, and the following year he was only 22 years old and he was elected a fellow of the college. A couple of years later, in 1936, both he and Alonzo Church both published papers arguing that the Entscheidungsproblem posed by David Hilbert in 1928 could have no general solution. Now, David Hilbert was looking for a way to create a consistent, complete mathematical view of the world. And the problem he posed was looking for an algorithm that would determine whether a particular statement could be universally valid across all potential conditions. Church used lambda calculus to determine that this was an unsolvable problem, which is now the foundation for a number of computer languages, while Turing invented a hypothetical theoretical machine. This machine, now called a Turing machine, carried both its algorithmic instructions and the results along with it on an infinite tape. Now, this was not a real machine, but it laid the foundation for stored program computing. From the beginning, Turing was very interested in creating a physical computer that could function in this way. For the rest of his life, he bounced in and out of projects designed to create these uh, devices. Turing's paper titled On Computable Numbers with an Application to the Entscheidungsproblem can be considered one of the great foundations of modern computing or, well, at least theoretical computer science. Church was certainly impressed and he took Turing on as a doctoral candidate um, at Princeton between 1936 and 1938. His dissertation focused and expanded more on this idea of the Turing machine, 
focusing particularly on the types of problems it could not solve. When he finished his doctorate in 1938, he returned to Cambridge, and in September, he started working with a, an entity called the Government Code and Cipher School. Britain was facing a very real potential of war at this point in time, and the GC and CS was looking for educated professorial types. They chose their headquarters location, Bletchley Park, because it was convenient to both Cambridge and Oxford and was only 40 miles from London. Far enough to be safe, but not so far that it was out of touch. On the 3rd of September, 1939, Britain declared war, and on the 4th of September, Alan Turing moved from Cambridge to Bletchley Park. There, he worked on improving a Polish design called the Bomba, which was a device to crack the Enigma codes that the German military was using to encode its secret communications. Changes to the Enigma had recently rendered the Bomba slightly less useful, and the British team was working to create a more efficient and faster method of breaking the uh, ciphers. Each branch of the German military had its own variations on the Enigma machines that were used to encode their messages, and Turing took it upon himself to work on the most difficult, the naval enigma. Now, at this point, a lot of what he did during the war went unrecognized for a number of years because this information was not actually declassified until 2012. This should tell you exactly how important and how foundational the work he was doing was to cryptography and cryptoanalysis. Now, life at Bletchley Park was apparently very, very interesting. Employees ranged from professional military men to government officials to Cambridge-Oxford professors and to random administrators and clerks. The grounds themselves were just as much of a hodgepodge. There was an ornate manor house paired alongside with ramshackle slammed together huts that just barely housed the important work that needed to be done. Turing's work on the naval enigma was in hut eight. And now these hut names actually stuck with the projects even after they got better facilities. So hut eight later found itself sharing a brick building with several other departments, but it was still hut eight. Various biographers and interviewees uh, identify many idiosyncratic behaviors from Alan Turing during this time frame that sort of flesh him out as an individual. For example, in June, when his allergies were bad, he was known to wear a gas mask when he rode around on his bicycle. I sympathize with that one. And the bicycle itself apparently had a chain that slipped its gears on an amazingly regular schedule. Instead of getting it fixed, Turing just counted the number of times he'd pedaled, and when it reached a certain point, he'd stop, get off, and manually adjust the chain. He was a fabulous long-distance runner who apparently almost qualified for Britain's Olympic team for the marathon, and uh, rather than take the train to London if he had an important meeting, he was just as likely to run from Bletchley Park, 40 miles away. I'm sure the world benefited from the time he spent just running and thinking, but he certainly was not your stereotypical nerd who never goes outside. 
He was open and chatty, and despite a short engagement to Joan Clark from spring summer in 1941, he was actually, for the time, remarkably open about his homosexuality. We'll be coming back to that point in a bit. Turing's role in cracking the naval enigma allowed the Allies to reduce the efficacy of the U-boats in the Atlantic, and thus permitted the D-Day attacks to take place much faster than they would have otherwise. As a result, he was awarded the Order of the British Empire in 1945, though the details of how he had earned it were still very hush-hush. Following the war, he returned to London to the National Physical Laboratory and worked on the automatic computing engine from 1945 to 1947, but uh, he was pretty frustrated with the amount of secrecy that still remained around computing and cryptography, so he left that project before the engine was actually completed. In 1948, he accepted a position as reader in the mathematics department at uh, the University of Manchester, and he continued work on both pure mathematics and computing. It was there in 1950 that he developed the idea of the Turing test, which is a measure for artificial intelligence. That is, a computer could be considered intelligent, with air quotes around it, if a human could not tell that it was actually a machine in conversation. The best way to achieve this, he felt, was not to aim for a completely mature way of thinking, but rather to start with something less developed and allow the machine to learn, basically to create a child and let that child grow and learn. Now, the most remarkable thing about a lot of Turing's developments is that he actually was creating these ideas before there was hardware that could actually do what he was theorizing. He was writing software and creating benchmarks for computers that did not exist yet. His ideas of computing and computation affected not only British computer science and development, but also American and continental ideas of how computers should be developed and how they should store their programming information and their operating instructions. He and his ideas were reaching international acclaim, and that's when it all started falling apart. He began a relationship with a homeless 19-year-old man by the name of Arnold Murray, and On January 23, 1952, one of Arnold's acquaintances broke into Alan's house. While filing a report with the police, he admitted his relationship to Mr. Murray, and both men found themselves on trial for gross indecency. Turing pled guilty, and he was given a choice between imprisonment or probation with chemical castration. He chose the latter. His conviction cost him all of his clearances, and he was no longer able to work on cryptography or cryptanalysis, and as a convict, he was no longer allowed entry into the United States. But despite the effects that the hormones had on his body, he apparently was quite cheerful and maintained good spirits throughout the entire process of probation, and he continued his work uh, throughout this time period. He started working on mathematical biology, Uh, specifically on the idea of morphogenesis, and he worked on that mainly between 1952 and his death in 1954. Morphogenesis is a model that explains how salamanders and cats and 
creatures like that get their spots through a process of both growth and chemical reaction. This model also explains how fingers and toes develop in the way that they do. And it has actually just recently been confirmed. With the continuation of his work and his apparent lack of any depressive uh, tendencies, it was a bit of a shock when his housekeeper came in on the 8th of June 1954 to find him dead. The cause of death was cyanide poisoning, but the mode, whether it was suicidal or accidental, inhaled or consumed, is a bit more nebulous. He did have a gold electroplating machine set up in a spare room and did not have adequate venting for it, so it is entirely possible, as Jack Copeland suggests, that he inhaled cyanide while working in that room and poisoned himself that way. It is also distinctly possible that uh, the half-eaten apple that was found next to his corpse, for some reason, either through careless placement or more sinister means, um, was laced with the cyanide that was available in the house. He did have a habit of eating apples before bed, and he did have his to-do list lined up for the following day. So it seems like... This is more of an accidental sort of affair than a direct suicide. However, Andrew Hodges notes that he was fascinated by the fairy tale of Snow White, and the way that things were lined up gave his mother plausible deniability that this was a suicide. It would seem in his death he's giving us yet another unsolvable equation. By modern standards, the treatment that Alan Turing received when his homosexuality became a matter of the law is, of course, untenable. You could go so far as to call it reprehensible. And in August of 2009, a petition started, and it was raised several times, to have Alan Turing pardoned. The Crown does not normally do that. They tend to allow those convictions to stand as a matter of principle. However, on the 24th of December, 2013, the Crown did in fact pardon Alan Turing from the crime of gross indecency. A lovely gesture, of course, but it still doesn't prevent you from playing subjunctive history and wondering what life would have been like for Alan Turing had he not been so limited in his final years. It's a story that has really captured our attention today. Now there are plays, and there's a, a biopic coming out this fall, The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. There are two operas. One is under development in New York. The composer is Justine F. Chen, and the librettist is David Simpatico. And The Pet Shop Boys released an opera this year, A Man from the Future, at the BBC Proms in June. So it's readily apparent that Alan Turing's moment has come, and that is really only fair because so much of the modern world today is based on his ideas and the developments he made in computational science. And that, my friends, is a reminder that the best stories aren't always in the footnotes. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. 
Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!